Hello, welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht, joined by Jacobin Staff Writer Megan Day. Hi, Megan. Hi, Micah. How are you taking the news that Kamala Harris is the VP pick? Oh, I'm just, it's just, I've never felt such, you know, it's been a real dark time uh, over the last couple months, but it's been a real uh, pick-me-up to get this news. I know, things are finally turning around. They're finally turning in our favor. Well, this is actually what we uh, here to discuss today. It's just me and Megan. And uh, I wanted to talk about this because uh, the, the the literal opposite of what I just said is, is true about my feelings Thanks about for clarifying. Kamala Harris's choices. VP and um, you know I don't think I need to remind anybody who listens to this podcast that uh, Harris has a pretty bleak record certainly from a leftist perspective but um, uh, maybe we should just start there because let's just do a refresher course on who this person is before we talk about her nomination and, and what it means um you know, wh- why don't you just start with what a, what what are some of the greatest hits of the uh, Kamala Harris career? I mean, I think that it's important to begin by clarifying that she is was not a progressive prosecutor. Like that is the most important thing to um, establish first, because that's the myth that she's built for herself. You know, the idea of a whole the whole idea of a progressive prosecutor is something that comes out of Black Lives Matter. Um, 2014, 2015. Um, You see, like, I mean, like, maybe there were some more progressive prosecutors before then, but the idea that, like, Larry Krasner and, like, Chesa Boudin and there were going to be, there was going to be this, like, movement of progressive prosecutors is a more um, recent phenomenon um, that wasn't even, like, a thing when Kamala Harris was a prosecutor. And you mean that it comes, it comes out of the wake of the first Black Lives Matter uprising, not that Black Lives Matter as a movement was talking about progressive prosecutors or anything like that. No, they weren't. I mean, they weren't really not. I mean, maybe it was in the background, but yeah, that wasn't like a main focus, but in any case, it's a more recent phenomenon. And so when Kamala Harris talks about herself as a progressive prosecutor, she's clearly rewriting history. That was not something that you would do in order to pursue, you know, like you, in order to pursue political power at the time that she was actually a prosecutor. And yeah, we should remember the headline in the New York times from last year that read, Kamala Harris was not a progressive prosecutor. (laughs) Yes, that was a really good article, actually. And it was an article that um, I think helped bust the myth and I think actually like um, really compromised her campaign. Um, It contained a lot of really useful information, such as, for example, the fact that she fought very hard to to keep innocent people in jail. Like when she was presented with evidence that people were innocent or probably innocent, she fought very, she saw it as her mandate to fight as hard as she could to make sure that they stayed behind bars. You know, she fought against, um, you know, ending the death penalty. She um, was opposed, you know, legalization of marijuana and, you know, reclassifying some felonies to misdemeanors. I mean, she was a real, she was a real tough on crime, law and order style prosecutor. So this idea that she was a progressive prosecutor is, is a myth. It doesn't mean that she didn't do an occasional progressive thing as a prosecutor, but she definitely was not in that mold. Right. Well, we should say in fairness to her and the the real, uh, the key text to read on this is by our own Bronco March teach who, 
uh, for anybody who you want to get the get the dirt on, you just uh, have to Google their name and Jacobin Mag, and you'll find Bronco's like ten thousand word piece on on them. Uh, and he has a very uh, long piece in Jacobin from when the f- rumors about her first running for president were floating around, where he goes through her entire career. And as you said, he doesn't say that she has never done a good progressive thing in her entire political career. His his basic argument is like for every progressive accomplishment she has there are one or two or three uh reactionary ones that she has uh to to pair it with often directly undercutting the progressive thing that she had done not long in the past and so it's not uh, a a career of someone who's never done anything decent in their lives it's somebody who's uh who who clearly uh, is willing to move in the reactionary direction whenever she thinks that uh, the dictates of an election or a re-election might require it. Yeah, and I think that importantly, she's a she's a she's a political player who who believes that it's important to keep key constituencies happy, and so she's kind of triangulating constantly. Um, and you know, some of those constituencies would be like, for example, the like. Um, you know, like this Catholic church in San Francisco, there's this hor- horrifying story about how she, you know, ceased the um, investigation or prosecution of um, church sexual abuse, which had been underway prior to her assuming office as the um, district attorney in San Francisco. Um, and, you know, the speculation is that that was a political maneuver on her part. Um, you know, she's sort of like, you know, made made friends with, you know, the police uh, chiefs, police unions, things like that. I actually want to rattle off some stuff from Bronco's article because I think that this will just suffice as a summary and then we can move on from this. This is about her prosecutorial record. Bronco wrote uh, in this article that Micah correctly recommended, uh, she fought to keep innocent people in jail, blocked payouts to the wrongfully convicted, argued for keeping nonviolent offenders in jail as a source of cheap labor, withheld evidence that could have freed numerous prisoners, tried to dismiss a suit to end solitary confinement in California, and denied gender reassignment surgery to trans inmates. A recent report detailed how Harris risked being held in contempt of court for resisting a court order to release nonviolent prisoners, which one law professor compared to Southern resistance to 1950s desegregation orders. So no, Kamala Harris was was not a, a a progressive prosecutor in the vein of Larry Krasner and Chesa Boudin. That is that is absolutely false. Well, and not only that, I mean, we're, that's just on the prosecu- prosecutorial front. There's the politics beyond that, and uh, in the New York Times uh, today, there's an article uh, where you know second sentence, second uh, first paragraph, of the second uh, first sentence of the second paragraph. Wall Street is happy about the signal it sends. The it being Harris being chosen as Biden's uh, VP. So uh, Wall Street's uh, feeling pretty good about having her in the number two slot, and also feeling pretty good about having Biden in the number one slot. All right, let's talk about that because that I think is really that's really key to understanding why we're in the situation that we're in right now. First, I want to clarify that I think you know I speak for both Micah and myself when I say that whoever Joe Biden picked as VP, this was not going to make an enormous impact on, you know, the course of Biden's tenure. It's not like, you know, progressives had like great hope and these hopes were dashed. I I do think that, you know, it was all going to be like pretty, it was going to be, it was all going to be like pretty mediocre. We were going to have to really pressure the administration to get anything done um, no matter what. But um, why was it Kamala Harris? And I think that the answer to this question 
is found in what has happened in the, the two days since. Um, you know, I think it was $26 million that Joe Biden's campaign has received since, yeah, Biden campaign re received, it raised $26 million in 24 hours after announcing Kamala Harris as the running mate. Look, I don't have the details on this. I don't have the breakdown. This is not public information yet, but I feel pretty confident that that's not small dollar donations from very enthusiastic supporters of Kamala Harris. <laughs> Though to be clear, she has extremely enthusiastic supporters and we'll get to that later, but- well, I, I put in my twenty seven. I know you did. So, I know you, know. you did. Well, we, well, we all did. But I still feel that it didn't uh, probably match the money that was thrown in by billionaires. And the reason I feel this way is that if you read, there's the CNBC article. It's titled "Wall Street Executives Are Glad Joe Biden Picked Kamala Harris to Be His VP Running Mate." This is the article that you should go read right now if you want to really understand what's going on here, because it's. Uh, the national finance finance chairman of her presidential campaign, who also happens to be a partner at a corporate restructuring firm called Kirkland and Ellis, basically in the article is quoted as saying that, you know, her supporters, and you should read here, that's big donors, like these are specific supporters, are ready to give Democrats the backing they need to defeat Trump. Um, Vice President Biden's decision is the perfect one. It demonstrates his excellent judgment and his and her supporters are willing to follow her lead and work nonstop to help Biden and Harris win this historic and critical election. So it's important to be able to read between the lines here. What what he is talking about, this is the finance chairman of her presidential campaign. He's the one who knows all the rich people who donated to Kamala Harris. He's saying that they were leveraging billionaire donations in order to uh, see her be, you know, chosen as the VP um, pick. And now that that's happened, they have given the green light and the billionaire money is rolling in. And that to me, I'm pretty quite certain that that is why um, Joe Biden chose Kamala Harris at the end of the day. That's like, people are talking about geographical this and like race and gender that, and I'm sure these play some role, but ultimately she has the fattest Rolodex of top dollar donors, like in American politics. I mean, her entire presidential campaign was just basically being on the phone with the richest people in the richest state in the richest country in the history of the world. And she is known for throwing massive, you know, top dollar fundraisers with, um, you know, like California old money, like the Gettys support her, you know, California film and entertainment, like George Lucas threw a bunch of money her way. California tech, like, um, you know, Laureen Jobs and a bunch of Silicon Valley people, they all are big thumbs up on Kamala Harris. And those are the people that came in the packet. It was a package deal. And that's ultimately why Joe Biden picked her. That's that's my two cents. Well, and it's not like Wall Street was not giving Biden money before this. I mean, just four days ago in the New York Times, there's an article that's actually kind of uh, sad to read. It's called The Wallets of Wall Street Are With Joe Biden, If Not the Hearts. Oh, God. And it begins with Not even anecdote. Wall Street can exactly. muster the enthusiasm for Joe Biden. For Joe Biden, who, as Bronco also makes clear in his book, has been just such a steadfast supporter that's of That's the thing. The if Wall Street banks. can't really get excited, I mean, he's their guy. But he, nobody, nobody can really get excited about Joe Biden. Despite him being their guy, the article starts with this such sad anecdote about how these Wall Street people are showing up to these fundraisers for Biden and the staffers for Biden are like, hey, do you guys want a picture with the candidate? And they're like, no, that's okay. We're, good. We're just gonna oh, go over so here and you know, nibble oh our God. nibble our sushi or whatever. And but but you know they were still showing up to 
fork over the money to him and uh he apparently uh his campaign said to them that he was only going to do in-person events uh where people were raising like more than a million dollars so uh yeah it's not like even if they were uh being kind of uh mean to old grandpa joe uh, they were with him before that, but uh, now they're all all aboard the uh, the Biden Harris train because Harris is. Uh, the, I mean, clearly Harris is the, the the choice of Harris is is the kind of signal that they want that there's not going to be a, a significant curtailing of their power and wealth. This is actually in that CNBC article too. There's a man named Charles Myers who is the founder of Signum and former vice chair of Evercore. I don't know what Signum and Evercore are. They sound evil to me, but anyway. Um, they, the, these, this man, Charles Myers, told CNBC that the choice eased the nerves of clients. I guess Signum and Evercore have clients. I'm sure they're also evil. Who were questioning whether Biden would stay in the moderate lane. Quote, our clients really wanted to know if Biden was going to stay in the center. And his pick of Harris reinforces that. Um, so I just think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, people like who, you know, nor- normal Democratic Party base people who are talking about, you know, it's historic first for identity reasons, or actually she's more progressive than people give her credit for, for this and that. But like Wall Street understands what this means. It's loud and clear to them. All right. So we're probably trotting ground that listeners are already familiar with but it's just important to go back over that uh the 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 stuff of her record and also the stuff of what the reaction in the uh we're we're recording this a little less than 48 hours since the announcement came so that's that's what the uh the reaction from uh you know the the power players in our society are the, the the people who are the real power elite um and none of this was particularly surprising i didn't really it's not like i as you said i didn't have high hopes i was i wasn't praying for like maybe he's actually gonna choose bernie to be his uh, vp or something like that uh even if that were to happen it's debatable whether that would be a good thing so um I, I wasn't like holding out for anything like that but i was kind of surprised at my own reaction not of disappointment but more just like despair at what this means because this was a choice that was made after everything that's happened in the last few years in American politics, right? Like after Bernie's 2016 campaign, uh, we have Bernie running two very credible and serious presidential campaigns. He becomes a major player in American politics. He shows people that a real political alternative to the kind of neoliberal centrism that someone like Biden has you know, been a, at the forefront of his entire political career. We, we saw that a political alternative to that was possible in the United States, and we've gotten people like AOC elected and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and all of the, the like, DSA and, and uh, DSA, you know, adjacent people are getting elected in, in small but important numbers. And, you know, all of that happens, and yet they choose Biden to be the one uh, to coalesce around uh, to defeat Bernie in, in the 2020 campaign. So it's like, okay, that's depressing enough, right? And you've got all that happening in the background, so you're like, okay, maybe they'll at least throw us a bone somewhere. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be happening in any of the policy and platform discussions in the lead-up to the DNC. Uh, we've got you know reports of large numbers of delegates uh, you know saying that they are going to, to vote against or protest 
the party platform if it doesn't include Medicare for all, which Biden is still uh, pushing for. Um, but so we have that on the one hand. And then we have literally the most massive uprising of a protest movement in the history of the United States in the form of the racial justice protests that came after George Floyd's murder by a Minneapolis police officer. Something we, we, there's, there's nothing like it that we've seen in at least a half a century, and there's, there's never been anything this big ever in the country. And you would think then that that might be some kind of input that would go into the decision-making uh, to, for example, not choose someone who was uh, became a whole meme that you know, Kam, you know, Kamala the cop, Kamala the cop. That was the whole thing that uh, some people said sunk her uh, presidential aspirations because of her whole record on on prosecutions that we just talked about. You in the middle of such an uprising, you would think that at least the cop would not get chosen as the VP candidate, and yet here we are. And I just, it was pretty despairing to me. I mean, you and I wrote a book that, that talks a lot about what the, what the problems are with this Democratic Party that we're stuck with, that it's not a left-wing party, it's not a working-class party, blah, blah, blah. We all know what the issues there are. Uh, but it's like not even that. It's like the inputs come and yet there is no, you know, the, the, the party does not respond to the inputs, no matter what the inputs are, no matter the historic left-wing uh, campaigning, no matter the millions of people in the streets, none of it. It, it, goes, it goes in and there's just nothing that comes back out. And uh, that's a pretty bleak political situation to be taking stock of. Yeah. Okay. I agree with all of this. I also want to say that I too was like not really invested in this whole VP pick process. And then I was like kind of surprised by my kind of crushed reaction to it being Kamala Harris, because I don't know, just Kamala Harris in this moment. I mean, in 2015, she opposed, this is on the heels of the first Black Lives Matter wave of protests. She opposed a bill requiring her office to investigate shootings by police officers after the first Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's not like she she changed with the times or whatever. It's not like, you know, she was just like she was with the consensus before Black Lives Matter. And then she like understood and evolved. No, I mean, she was like digging her heels in all the way up to her, um, you know, final days as uh, California Attorney General. So um, the fact that we have this this Black Lives Matter uprising in the streets and Kamala Harris was selected as the VP pick in the midst of that is quite depressing. I think that it means a couple of things. And also, I just want to echo what you said, too, which is um, it should be clear to anyone who pays attention to politics that Bernie Sanders' base, millions and millions of people who are very fanatically uh, into Bernie Sanders and his politics do not like Kamala Harris. This is just a basic observation that you can get from looking at the internet. It's polling everything. It's obvious. And so this, we just had, you know, we just had an, a primary contest in which um, Bernie very nearly walked away with the nomination. Unfortunately, did not. But 
the party just doesn't seem to be interested in those millions and millions of votes, actually, um, or just like keeping keeping this constituency happy. So that's really depressing. The Bernie movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, neither neither of these constituencies are factoring very much into the Democratic Party triangulation, and that's pretty depressing. But in terms of what it means, I think one, um, it means that we are. Uh, not as powerful as we want to be. I think we just need to put that out there. Like that's like, we, sh- we should be able to make a dent. Um, not because we think that we can appeal to the hearts and minds of top Democratic Party brass or whatever, but because we understand that these they are craven opportunists and we would like them to see some opportunities in placating us. That would be a sign of our power. And because that's not happening right now, I think that we have to interpret that as a sign of our weakness. Um, and we need to like sit and really like ruminate about what that means and what that means for our strategy so far and how it needs to change. It doesn't necessarily mean that we need to go back to the drawing board. Maybe we just need to pre- press harder on some of the things that we feel like have been working. But in any case, um, it's kind of a sorry state of affairs. And I don't think that we should just chalk it up to the Democratic Party being terrible. We know they're terrible. We also need to look in the mirror a little bit. Um, The second thing, though, is that it's also true that there are a lot of us. There are a lot of people in this country who want a robust social democratic uh, platform, who want transformational uh, economic and social change. There are a lot of us. And so they're kind of dumb. I mean, the Democratic Party is like kind of dumb for actually not trying to placate us, which might actually spell their demise. I mean, that's basically up to us. Like, it's not going to be automatic. It's not a Rube Goldberg machine. It's not like they fuck up and then we win. You know, we actually have to be agentive and we have to develop strategy in order to take advantage of their idiocy. But it seems to me that they are um, with this Kamala Harris VP pick and everything that's happened over the last, um, you know, five years. Um, they they have pretty thick skulls, and we should try to use that to our advantage. Um, you know, you and I, Micah, have like put forward this kind of preferred strategic orientation to the Democratic Party, which is called the dirty break. It's not something that we came up with. But the idea is that we're going to continue pressing on cleavages within the Democratic Party, sort of like finding cracks and using a crowbar to pry them open, basically picking fights with Democratic Party elites to demonstrate the deep corruption in the party itself, um, which will hopefully help help us create a scenario in which we can break away from the Democrats because we think that they're like kind of irredeemable. Um, Well, if you think about it, that that is actually aided. That project is actually aided by them stepping in it over and over, right? <laughs> the, the Democrats are heightening. They're heightening their, their own, own exactly. They're here. heightening their own <laughs> contradictions. So. I don't know. If you take all of that together, I guess it's more of an exhortation for us to develop better strategy and also a sign to like actually consider their recalcitrance and stubbornness and like blindness to the political phenomena around them to be an important piece of our own strategy. Right. Yeah, I guess the question is what you do with that right now. I mean, it's almost like they're if they are indeed heightening their own contradictions, it's another way to say that is like they're goading us i feel like they're rubbing our faces in in shit they're rubbing our own our faces and shit like they're like it, it's it it almost feels like they're doing a little they're just doing a little da- victory dance on our on our you know on our crumpled bodies it's just like like i dare you to to even try to uh be mad about this like you you thought that you could 
you tried a whole bunch of strategies. You tried to go the electoral route. You tried burning shit down. You tried to get millions of people in the street. And guess what? We don't give a shit about it. We're going to just do whatever the hell we want. And, uh, I don't know. What, what? <laughs> I would like to see Trump lose, obviously. But, like, I would also uh, like to have a shred of dignity. And when people rub my face and shit, I would like to say, fuck you. Like, I'm not going to... You know, go along with your bullshit anymore. I think that's right. I think that I was going to say, well, in terms of what we do in the long term, that's a broad, broad conversation, way too broad for this podcast. But in terms of what we do in the short term, I mean, I'm going to continue saying out loud that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are not good, that they are in they are representative of the type of neoliberal pro-corporate politics of the Democratic Party that has actually enabled the rise of a completely out-of-pocket reactionary right, and that these two things go in tandem, and that therefore I'm not obligated because of the rise of the reactionary right, because of Trump, that doesn't obligate me to not criticize Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and the Democratic Party establishment. And you know what? We're going to face a lot of pushback when we put that criticism out there because you can hear it. I mean, you've been hearing it for months already, but it's definitely going to swell over the next few months as well, which is just the idea that we should basically like, yeah, your criticisms might be valid, but you really need to like keep them to yourself because we don't want to dissuade people from voting for Biden Harris. First of all, I mean, that's their fucking job. I mean, that's the that, that is parties and candidates' job is to be appealing, right, to voters. And right. like, if you point out that they're not appealing to voters, it's not your responsibility for turning voters yeah. off. If you're like pointing out they suck at their job, um, but I I also think that you know we just need to push back on lesser evilism. People can make, I actually trust people to make their own decisions about, you know, less like lesser evilism voting in battleground states or whatever. I don't really feel like I a, a huge responsibility to reach out to each one of those voters and like a, appeal to their conscience to make sure they do the right thing. For one reason, one of the reasons why I don't feel a huge responsibility to do that is because we know that in 2016, more Bernie primary voters voted for Hillary Clinton in the general than 2008 Hillary Clinton primary voters voted for Barack Obama in the general. So this is not a, an endemic problem on the left, the left sort of like, you know, um, part of the spectrum of the party. Um, if anything, it's probably accentuated on the conservative or right wing spectrum of the party. Um, so I'm not too worried about it. And I also think that in terms of what we need to do right now as a part of a strategy, if they're going to go ahead and heighten their own contradictions, and if we're starting to talk about developing a strategy of making the most of that, that means we don't shut up. Even when people tell us that we're imperiling or compromising or whatever, we're feeding into Russia this and Trump that, we just don't shut up. We just tell tell the truth, level honest criticisms, make sure that they're based in reality and fact and that they have you know strong political content. And then even when people go apoplectic at us, just whatever. That's our job right now. Tell the truth. Well, you say that now, Megan, but... I think there's one thing that you're not taking into oh, consideration. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> which is that this choice that means it. the return of the K-Hive, baby. Yeah. If you tell the truth, K-Hive will 
firebomb your house. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is a per, you know, we uh, recently interviewed uh, Matt Carp and we asked him about the wide awakes, which were this kind of like paramilitary, like formation that were you know associated with abraham lincoln and the uh Re- republican party that were this kind of like yeah paramilitary force uh in, in backing the party and backing anti-slavery well k-hive in uh, the 21st century is the the digital wide awakes <laughs> absolutely just the incredible militancy for one thing i think like it should be obvious to anyone who's glanced at Twitter over the last, you know, like six to eight months that all of the stuff about Bernie bros being like deranged harassers um, uh, is like, yeah, you're going to find, you're going to find some stuff like that. I mean, look, a lot of people are passionate about politics, have internet access and are like really aggressive and kind of weird and shrouded in anonymity. So like, sure, you can find evidence of that. I genuinely think that K hive is like what people said about Bernie bros, but like doubled in intensity and and like and completely given a pass by the mainstream media. Did you see that thing where it was the same guy, Scott Bixby? I think it was it was the Daily Beast, right? The same author wrote oh, right, an, yeah. ar- wrote an article that was like, um, Bernie Bros are like toxic and deranged, and they're harassing everyone into submission. When will he rein them in? And then wrote an article um, just the just like yesterday or the day before that was like Kamala Harris has built a very enthusiastic enthusiastic digital army, and now she gets to use it. Like just huge thumbs up. Um, these people are uh, extraordinarily toxic, and they actually do. I mean, I really mean it. They do make it hard to maneuver and to. We're not even just joking to tell the truth in the way that we're talking about to level the criticism that we think are necessary um right now i you know you're gonna face not just some pushback some from some regular concerned liberals who are worried that you're actually feeding into trump's agenda you're also gonna face um some really intense i don't know i hate i hesitate to use the word harassment but i have seen it and some of it rises to the level of harassment from Kamala Harris supporters. And before we uh, go on, I should say that what I was just talking about before, about how in 2008, Hillary Clinton's voters, a lot of them abstained from the general election or they voted for McCain. Actually, I think more of them voted for McCain in 2008 than abstained. those people had a little acronym for themselves, if you're not familiar. That acronym was PUMA. They were the PUMAs. And PUMA stood for Party Unity My Ass. And so actually, in recent history, the kind of dynamic that uh, you're observing now with Bernie or Bust has been reversed with the conservative elements of the Democratic Party doing the same thing, but stronger, actually, um, more successfully, because they were more likely to like go over and swing to the Republicans. Anyway, the reason I'm saying this is because it's the K-Hive is not new. The K-Hive is the new face of this strain within the Democratic Party electorate, who are basically the radical conservative edge of the Democratic Party, but also very enthusiastic about identity politics. And so it's from Pumas to K-Hives, there's a, there's a through line. And a lot of them are actually the exact same people. I just looked up that article you were talking about, and uh, it's called Kamala built a digital army, now she gets to use it. And the <laughs> graphic is a picture of, of like a, an illustration of her face. And then I don't know what to call it. Like, uh, it kind of looks like, you know, like a circle in the center. Uh, and then there are these like beams of light shooting out around the circle. It looks like a sun. And then there's a gif of just like the, the, the beams like lighting up, like in a, in a sort of uh, counterclockwise motion, like over and over. And the <laughs> Daily Beast has these little tags that they affix to articles. And the tag affixed to this one is no choice but to stand. 
<laughs> so, you know, no choice but to stand the digital paramilitaries. No choice. We got no choice but to stand. There's compulsory standing of Kamala Harris. Um, and if you violate these orders, you will face dire consequences. Well, I, I hesitate to say what I'm about to say, uh, but I'm just going to say it anyway. It uh, seems like the lesson to take from this is to uh, ignore all of these, all the finger wagging at, uh, you know, leftists who are posting on the internet and just realize that this is just what uh, a basic tactic of political warfare in the 21st century. And so it's like this, the, the upshot of this seems to be that uh, the Bernie bros should just really hunker down in their trenches and just keep posting. But I, I it's thinking, thinking about that uh, makes me feel a little nauseous. I mean, we're going to be stuck. We're going to be stuck with the K hive for a while yet. Like I said, they, they predate, Kamala's rise, and they will be with us so long as these contradictions in the Democratic Party, which is just not a coherent party with a coherent political program. If anything, it's a party that actually contains two diametrically opposed political programs um, within it. Um, so yes, there's going to be conflict within the Democratic Party because it's a cross-class coalition. Um, and that means it's going to be riven with conflict for the foreseeable future. And that means that we're going to be stuck with these types that, you know, these sort of radical centrists. Um, First, they were called the Pumas. Now they're called the K-Hive. They'll be with us forever. They will be aided in their in their um, in their task of terrorizing us by, you know, David Brock's like paid troll army, I'm sure. And we do have to tune them out. I mean, they do get kind of nasty and they actually like they actually do the things that Bernie bros have been alleged to do. I mean, they dox people, they threaten people with, you know, various forms of violence and assault. Um I've seen it myself. I've witnessed it myself. I've experienced it myself, actually. It's very unpleasant. But you do have to tune them out, um, just understanding that this is part of the package. This is this is just going to be a part of the political landscape for the foreseeable future. And it probably will be affixed to a culture of fandom around Kamala Harris for the foreseeable future, because in reality, Kamala Harris is here to stay. I mean, she's probably going to be our president, Micah. Harris 2024. Yeah, that's what this is all about, right? Because it's, it's clear. I mean, it, it's not even clear that Biden will be able to make it through uh, the end of a first term, much less run for a second one. So obviously, she's being set up to uh, run again in 2024. And I guess that is a strong argument for those of us on the left. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, I guess I hope that she and Biden win to get Trump out of there. But like, we need to be laying the groundwork to uh, be, you know, to win the argument in 2024. Uh, that Kamala Harris should not be uh, our president. I think that it's possible that she will be with us for 12 years, that she'll be vice president for four years and then president for eight years, and that we will have over a decade of Kamala Harris. And also bearing in mind that Joe Biden being, you know, basically incapacitated, um, Kamala Harris is going to assume a much uh, more visible role in his administration than he did in the Obama administration, for example. Like she's the more charismatic person in that in that duo. Um, once again, Joe Biden overshadowed. She's exactly she's the Cheney. Oh man, she's not, not not she's more charismatic, but but in terms of like the you know being more competent as a as a politician as an administrator, like she clearly would be would be would be the Cheney there. I actually had if you looked at some of the reporting that was coming out during the VP pick process, some people who were close to Biden were actually concerned about the level of Machiavellian scheming that Kamala Harris had demonstrated <laughs> herself to be capable of. I mean, not necessarily 
competently. I mean, obviously her campaign was a disaster, but it's clear that she's a striver and that she is a climber and that she's like entirely self-interested and, and, and her ambition is, you know, enormous. And some people close to Biden were saying that she would potentially like mess up his administration because she would essentially hijack it and he would be almost powerless to do anything about it because he's like, he has dementia. Uh, so, um, and they didn't want that because, you know, they're close to him and they want to be in charge of stuff. They don't want Kamala and her people to be in charge of stuff. So that was actually a conversation leading up to this, which is important to take note of because now it has transpired that she's the VP pick. And I think that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to be in the white house. I think that Trump's going to lose. That's my prediction. Who knows? Um, and that means that this is a very likely a dynamic that actually will play out. Like Kamala Harris could essentially be in charge of the executive office for 12 years, including the four years that she's Biden's VP. Well, it's a rosy picture for the immediate future in American politics. Uh, I think we're both feeling pretty good. Uh, so, you know. Yeah, I just, feel great. You know, <laughs> got this happening at a time of uh, you know world historic pandemic and economic collapse and uh things are things are really things are really looking up so uh thanks for uh thanks for sinking me into a further depression megan yeah this was awesome i feel excellent i'm gonna go have a nice day i hope you do too <laughs> we're, we're, at least we're on this journey together 